Hello and welcome to All Things Plantagenet. My name is Donnie Hazel and I am your host. To all my original listeners, welcome back. To all my new listeners, welcome. If you enjoy the podcast and wish to support this show, you can help support it by clicking on the support link in the description of any episode. I have also created a website, www.allthingsplantagenet.com where you can find additional information and resources, as well as the episodes for this podcast. There is also a link on the website to the Facebook page for All Things Plantagenet. Okay, so now on to the show. Chapter 8 of England and the Hundred Years' War by Charles William Chadwick Oman. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Pamela Nagami. Richard II, 1388 to 1399. The Lords Appellant were very much deceived if they imagined that their coup d'etat was likely to reduce King Richard to a permanent state of dependence. He was no coward or trifler, and devoted the whole of the rest of his life to an elaborate scheme of vengeance against the men who had slain his friends and inflicted such deep humiliation on himself. Warned of the strength of Gloucester's party, by the events of 1388, he was resolved to spend years, if necessary, in preparing for a new struggle the next time he would have armed force at his back and would not be caught unprepared. The government of the Lord's Appellant lasted no more than a year. It was not more fortunate or capable than that which it had superseded, for Gloucester soon showed that he was an intriguer and not a statesman nor was he even consistent in his policy, though he had always been an advocate of vigorous war with France, he now concluded a truce with the young Charles VI. France was at the time in a condition not unlike that of England, for Charles was a victim of a tribe of domineering uncles, who dealt with him in much the same way that Lancaster and Gloucester dealt with Richard II. He made no objection to the long-needed suspension of hostilities. In May 1389, King Richard found it possible to take the governance of the realm out of the hands of the Lord's appellants. He surprised those who were present at the council by suddenly asking his uncle, Gloucester, what was his own age. The duke answered that he was now in his twenty-third year. To this, Richard replied that since he had so long passed his majority, he was old enough to govern his own realm, and that he would choose his own ministers. He formally thanked the Lord's appellants for their services, but said that he had no further need for them. If he had dared to recall his exiled friends or to take open measures of vengeance against his oppressors, there is no doubt that civil war would have broken out. But Richard was now playing a very cautious game. He made his grandfather's old advisers his ministers, the good bishop William of Wickham became chancellor, and Branningham of Exeter treasurer, just as they had been in 1371. The Lord's appellants were not driven out of the council, but allowed to keep their seats, though they no longer dominated the whole body. Nothing was done to which any exception could be taken, so the malcontents had no opportunity of appealing to the country or rising in revolt. The next eight years were by far the most fortunate and prosperous part of King Richard's reign. He governed well and wisely, and won golden opinions on every side. 
the most statesmanlike of all his measures was the conclusion of a permanent agreement with France. The two countries were to be at peace for thirty years, England retaining Calais and the district round Bordeaux and Bayonne, but surrendering her claim to her other lost possessions. The treaty was made firm by Richard's marriage to Isabella, the eight-year-old daughter of the French king. He had lately lost his first wife, Anne of Bohemia, and so was free to wed again. But it was unwise to choose so young a bride, for he had no children by his first marriage, and an heir to the throne was much needed. As long as Richard was childless, his uncles and cousins were tempted to dream of ultimately succeeding to his crown. As a temporary measure of expediency, he recognized as heir apparent Roger, Earl of March, the grandson of Lionel of Clarence, the second son of Edward III. This action was very ill-received by John of Gaunt and his son, the Earl of Derby, who had secret hopes of asserting the preference of the male to the female line of succession. Among the most prominent features of the middle years of Richard's reign was the growing importance of the Wycliffeites or Lollards, as they were now beginning to be called. The reaction which followed the peasant revolt had only checked their rise for a short time. The king himself neither identified himself with them nor took any of the measures against them which the clergy endeavored to press on him. His wife Anne had been distinctly favorable to them, and her foreign servants and followers took back to their native land the teachings of Wycliffe, which were destined to inspire John Hus, the great Bohemian reformer. Some of the baronage, among whom the Earl of Salisbury was the most prominent person, and a great number of the wealthier members of the citizen class, were open supporters of the Wycliffeite movement. The trend of the times was in their favor, for the papacy was daily growing more scandalous. The great schism had now begun, and instead of one bad pope at Avignon, there were now two rival pontiffs, one at Avignon and one at Rome, who had excommunicated each other and were endeavoring to stir up the states of Europe to a general religious war. Wycliffe's teaching had now become doctrinal as well as political. In his old age he had preached against the invocation of saints, the superstitious adoration of relics and images, the spiritual efficacy of pilgrimages, and the real presence in the Eucharist. He persisted in his old denunciation of the over-great wealth of the clergy, and the influence of his followers in the Parliament is shown by their repeated attempts to introduce legislation confiscating monastic lands and church endowments for the benefit of the state. Richard refused to countenance these proposals, but he was equally firm in refusing to allow the bishops to persecute the Lollards. Wycliffe has died in peace, 1384, after having accomplished his great work of translating the Bible into the English tongue. His followers in the next generation were destined to fall upon more troublous times. Among other characteristic instances of King Richard's wise and careful governance of his realm may be mentioned his endeavor to introduce better order into Ireland, which his predecessors had systematically neglected for two hundred years. The English influence in the sister island had been greatly reduced during the reign of Edward II by the repeated invasions of Edward Bruce, who had drawn many of the native septs into rebellion. 
the scots were finally driven out but the havoc they had wrought was never repaired and the area over which the king's authority reached was permanently decreased many of the tribal chiefs of the north fell off from their allegiance and what was more dangerous still many of the anglo-norman settlers drifted into close alliance with the rebels adopting celtic names and became more irish than the irish themselves the assimilation of the new and old inhabitants would have been advantageous both for themselves and for england if it attended toward peace and union but its sole effect was to increase tribal civil war and to diminish the central power of the government even the pale the district round dublin which had been most thickly colonized by the english began to fall into disorder it was in vain that in thirteen sixty six king edward the third caused the statute of kilkenny to be passed forbidding the anglo-irish from mixing and marrying with the natives and adopting celtic customs such laws can never be kept when the tendency of the times is against them and the statute raised much bad blood between the settlers and the natives without having any permanent effect in restoring the power of the king in thirteen ninety four richard went over to ireland to try the effect of his personal presence in setting the land in order none of his predecessors since king john had visited it his arrival was not without effect many of the native chiefs did him homage and the lords of the pale were for a space more obedient he held a parliament of the whole land at dublin and then went home after appointing his heir apparent roger earl of march lord deputy of the island by thirteen ninety six richard felt himself firmly established on the throne and he knew that he was liked and trusted by the majority of the nation he felt that it would be no longer possible for a few powerful barons to rise against him and crush him as they had in thirteen eighty eight accordingly he thought that it was time for him to take in hand the punishment of his old enemies the lord's appellant he had even gone to the pains of dividing them by showing special favour to thomas mowbray the earl of nottingham and henry earl of derby the two who had been least implicated in the rising of thirteen eighty eight his real enmity was directed against gloucester arundel and warwick it must be confessed that the duke gave his nephew every opportunity and provocation that he could have desired he had intrigued against the french peace insulted the king on his marriage refused to keep the government of ireland when it was given to him and caused his partisans in parliament to make many perverse and unnecessary complaints against richard's household and ministers it was even said that he was plotting a second rebellion with the object of again seizing supreme power in thirteen ninety seven richard suddenly struck down his enemies warwick was arrested at a banquet while gloucester was captured by the king himself he rode out to plashy in essex the duke's favourite residence and personally laid hands on him telling him that he should have the same mercy that he had shown to burley nine years before arundel surrendered on promise of a fair trial before his peers richard then summoned a parliament and announced his intention of trying his three prisoners for treason copying their own procedure in thirteen eighty eight he had them appealed 
by a number of the barons of his own party. Among the new lords appellant were included the king's half-brothers, Kent and Huntington, Mowbray, Earl of Nottingham, Edmund of York, Earl of Rutland, and Scroop, a kinsman of the exiled Suffolk. Arundel and Warwick were duly impeached before their peers, both for their old doings and for the new treason laid to their charge. Both were condemned, and Arundel was beheaded. But Warwick's sentence was commuted to imprisonment for life in the Isle of Man. Gloucester did not appear for trial, but his death was reported to the Parliament. It seems clear that Richard had him secretly put to death in his prison at Calais, because he was determined not to spare him, yet shrank from the idea of ordering the public execution of such a near kinsman. Thus the king had secured his long-deferred vengeance for the evil doings of the merciless Parliament. He could not, however, recall his exiled friends Suffolk and Oxford, since both of them had died some time back. During the three years which he had yet to reign, he did not delegate his authority to any ministers of such power and influence as de la Pole and de Vere, but carried out a purely personal government, using as his instruments men of no importance who could be trusted to obey his orders. The chief of them was Suffolk's kinsman Scroop, whom he made Earl of Wilts, and Bushy the Speaker of the House of Commons. In this last period of his reign, Richard displayed distinctly unconstitutional tendencies, which gradually estranged from him the popular sympathy which he had gained by his good governance between 1389 and 1396. His conduct was not yet exactly tyrannical, but it made men fear that he might some day grow more violent. He raised some benevolences or forced loans from rich men whom he wished to keep in his dependence. He made persons whom he distrusted sign blank charters, which he could fill up at his pleasure with whatever terms he liked, if they should happen to displease him. Unlike the kings, his predecessors, he always kept a large guard of archers about him. But most ominous of all was an innovation which he invented in the year 1398, he got Parliament to delegate its powers to a standing committee of ten peers, two bishops, and six commoners, whose consent to a statute or a tax was to have the same power as a parliamentary vote of approval. This was a most dangerous device, for it was obviously easy for the king to dominate such a small body and to wring from it the approval of things which the two houses themselves would not have been likely to grant. All these moves on Richard's part were menaces to the Constitution, but he cannot be accused of having actually misgoverned the realm. He refrained from oppression because he hoped to keep the people on his side, but he had already made enemies of a large part of the baronage and of the clergy whom he had refused to aid in their attempts to attack the Lollards. The mass of the nation was not yet estranged from him, but they were seriously disturbed by his recent autocratic tendencies. The actual cause of Richard's fall came from a matter of personal revenge. The two surviving lords appellant, Mowbray and Henry of Lancaster, fell into a quarrel and accused each other of treason. Richard allowed them to challenge each other to a judicial duel, but when they appeared to fight it out in the lists at Coventry, 
he suddenly declared that the combat should not proceed, but that both should be banished the realm, Mowbray for life, Henry of Lancaster for ten years. This was regarded as a very hard decision, for one of the two must surely have been in the right. But there can be little doubt that Richard was merely carrying out to its final stage his vengeance for the acts of 1388. He had now punished all the murderers of Burley and Tresillian, 1398. A year later, John of Gaunt died at the age of 61. The vast Lancaster estates and the ducal title fell to his banished son. But Richard, very unjustly, refused to hand them over to him or to allow him to draw their revenues, taking them into his own possession. As Henry had not been declared a traitor or properly convicted of any misdoing, there was obviously no justification for this action. It turned the exile into an open enemy who was determined to risk anything to get revenge. In 1399 his opportunity came. The Earl of March, the Lord Deputy of Ireland, was slain in a skirmish by Irish rebels, and Richard hastily crossed to Ireland to restore order. He was engaged in a difficult campaign against the Wicklow Mountains when he received the surprising news that Henry of Lancaster had landed at Ravenspur in Yorkshire, having in his company Archbishop Arundel, the brother of the deceased Lord Appellant, and a few other exiles. He proclaimed that he had only come to sue for his duchy of Lancaster and had no treasonable designs, July 1399. He was soon joined by thousands of the retainers of his father and by many of the northern barons. The charge of the realm had been given during the king's absence to Edmund, Duke of York, Richard's last surviving uncle, a simple and unenterprising old man. He gathered an army together, but foolishly disbanded it when Lancaster vowed that he had no treasonable design, and only wished to appeal to a free parliament and to drive away evil counsellors from the king. Thus Henry found himself unopposed, and had the realm at his feet, for Richard was detained at Dublin by persistent easterly winds, which prevented him from crossing the Irish Channel. He soon showed the bent of his plans by seizing and executing without fair trial the king's chief ministers, Scroop, Earl of Wiltshire, Bushy, and Green. This roused some of Richard's faithful adherents to take arms, and the Earl of Salisbury got together an army in Wales to meet his master on his expected arrival. But by an unlucky chance the weather still kept Richard storm-bound in Ireland, and he only reached Milford Haven two days after Salisbury's host had disbanded itself and gone home in despair. The king had arrived almost alone, trusting to find his friends in arms and ready to aid him. He was soon surrounded by a force which Lancaster had sent against him under Percy, Earl of Northumberland. On a false assurance sworn by the earl that nothing treasonable was designed against his crown or person, Richard surrendered himself. He was at once hurried up to London, where a parliament had been hastily called together. Having now got his cousin into his hands, Henry showed that he aimed not at changing the ministry, but at seizing the throne. The parliament voted that Richard had forfeited his crown by breaking his coronation oath and governing unrighteously. 
on thirty-three separate charges, some of them absurd, and all couched in exaggerated language, he was declared to have deserved deposition. Richard, much broken in spirit, yielded and consented to abdicate, whereupon his cousin stepped forward and laid claim to the crown. The deposed monarch was sent to Pontefract Castle, which he was never to leave alive. End of chapter 8。Thank you for listening to this episode of All Things Plantagenet. Remember, we also have a website, www.allthingsplantagenet.com, where you can find additional information and resources, as well as the other episodes. Thank you for listening, and have a great day.